Father in heaven, what a privilege it is to call you Father. You are the exemplary Father. We can come to you every moment when we want to, when we need you, when we just want to have someone to embrace us and to tell us how much he loves us. Father, we thank you for the privilege of being here at camp meeting. It's been such a blessing already, and we know that today a high Sabbath is going to be a special blessing. We ask, Father, that as we study your word, that your Holy Spirit will be with us, that uh, you will open our minds that we might be able to understand, you might open our hearts that we might receive, that you might empower us to live the life that you would have us live in this final stage of earth's history. We believe we're living in the last days. Thank you, Lord, for being with us and for answering our prayer, for we ask it in the precious name of Jesus. Amen. I want to begin by reading a passage that we find in the book of Hebrews, chapter 8 and verses 1 through 5. Hebrews chapter 8, verses 1 through 5. Here, a comparison is being made between the sanctuary and its services on earth and the sanctuary and its services in heaven. And it reads in the following way, Hebrews 8, 1 through 5. Now this is the main point of the things we are saying. We have such a high priest who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in the heavens, a minister of the sanctuary and of the true tabernacle, which the Lord erected and not man. For every high priest is appointed to offer both gifts and sacrifices. Therefore, it is necessary that this one also have something to offer. For if he were on earth, he would not be a priest, since there are priests who offer the gifts according to the law. Who serve, now here comes the key uh, part, verse 5, who serve, that is the earthly sanctuary and its services, serve as a cap, copy and shadow of the heavenly things, as Moses was divinely instructed when he was about to make the tabernacle. For he said, See that you make all things according to the pattern shown you on the mountain. Now you'll notice in this passage very clearly that the earthly sanctuary and its services was a shadow, were a shadow of the heavenly sanctuary and its services. In other words, the earthly priesthood was a symbol of the priesthood of Christ in the heavenly sanctuary. Now, this morning we're going to talk about the Day of Atonement. Sometimes I believe that we focus so much on what Jesus does in the heavenly sanctuary during the Day of Atonement that we don't focus on what the people are supposed to do while Jesus is ministering in the heavenly sanctuary. You see, when we study the Day of Atonement, not only do you have what the priests did in the sanctuary on the Day of Atonement, but you also have very clear prescriptions about what the people were supposed to do on the Day of Atonement. So we can't say that the sanctuary on earth and its services on earth are a symbol of what Jesus does in the heavenly sanctuary on the Day of Atonement and not say that what the people did on earth needs to be done by the people as well while Jesus is cleansing the heavenly sanctuary. And so we need to focus not only on what Jesus does up there, we need to focus on what his people should be doing down here. So let's take a look at what uh, the people did on the Day of Atonement here on earth, which becomes a symbol or an illustration of what we should be doing during the Day of Atonement. First of all, we all know that the Day of Atonement was announced by the sound of trumpets. And of course, we know that the Feast of Trumpets was fulfilled uh, as a result of the Millerite movement. In other words, for several years before October 22, 1844, the Millerites, as well as others, preached about the upcoming Day of Atonement, that people needed to get ready for the Day of Atonement. Now, at the end of the Christian dispensation, right before the close of probation, we know that there is going to be once again the attention of people attracted to the heavenly sanctuary. 
uh, in Revelation chapter 18, verses 1 through 5, we have the loud cry. The loud cry is the call of God for people to come out of Babylon. In other words, this will be the earthly announcement that the judgment of the living is about to begin. It's kind of like a feast of trumpets, announcing that the day of atonement is about to come to an end, that the judgment of the living is going to take place, and that people need to get ready to meet their God. When the day of atonement ends, you're going to have only two groups. You're going to have those who remain in Babylon and those who come out of Babylon and belong to God's people. So you have, first of all, the Feast of Trumpets, which announces the beginning of the judgment of the dead in 1844, and at the very end of the Christian dispensation, the announcement that the judgment of the living is going to take place. Now, another thing that happened uh, on the Day of Atonement was that everyone was commanded to assemble around the sanctuary. In other words, uh, you can read this, I'm only going to mention the verses, Leviticus chapter 23 and verse 21, 24, and 27, three times in this passage, it says that people were required to gather around the sanctuary. And the main reason was because they, their mind had to be focused on what the high priest was doing inside the sanctuary. And so today, our minds should also be in heaven following what Jesus is doing in the heavenly day of atonement. In other words, we are to assemble around the sanctuary as well. We don't do it physically because the sanctuary in heaven has taken the place of the sanctuary on earth, but we can follow in our minds what Jesus is doing in the heavenly sanctuary. The second thing that I want to mention is that while the sanctuary was being cleansed on the earth, people were supposed to be afflicting their souls. This is mentioned several times in Leviticus 16 as well as Leviticus 23. Leviticus 16, 29 and 30, as well as Leviticus 23 and verse 27, clear, clearly tells us that on the Day of Atonement, people not only were to gather around the sanctuary, but they were to afflict their souls. They were to search out sin in their lives, to make sure that their lives were in harmony with the will of God. You see, what we need to do today, as we behold Jesus in the heavenly sanctuary, is also to afflict our souls. As we come closer to Jesus, we see His absolute perfection, His absolute beauty, His absolute sinlessness, and we feel our sin, our terrible condition. We say, Jesus, I'm a wretch, I'm a sinner, please cleanse me from sin. In other words, we are supposed to be afflicting our souls just like Israel afflicted their souls on the Day of Atonement in relation to the earthly sanctuary. Another thing which people did on the Day of Atonement was to fast. And uh, perhaps we have not fully understood what fasting means. You know, we can't fast from 1844 on because everybody would be dead. So what does this mean, fasting on the Day of Atonement for us? Well, perhaps we need to understand what true fasting is. In uh, the, work, the book Medical Ministry, page 283, Ellen White wrote what true fasting is. True, the true fasting, which should be recommended to all, is abstinence from every stimulating kind of food and the proper use of wholesome, simple food which God has provided in abundance. Amen. What do you think about that definition of fasting? Fasting, once again, is abstinence from every stimulating kind of food and the proper use of wholesome, simple food which God has provided in abundance. And the purpose is so that we have a clear mind on the Day of Atonement to be able to follow what Jesus is doing in the heavenly sanctuary. The purpose of health reform is not to prevent us from getting cancer. Although that's, that's a fringe benefit, I might say. The purpose is to have a healthy body and a clear mind in a healthy body that can grasp the will of God on the Day of Atonement. Now, fasting is also defined in another way in the Bible, a very unusual way, I might say. Isaiah 58, verses 6 and 7. See, we're talking about the true fast. What it means to fast on the Day of Atonement, it doesn't mean that you quit eating for 24 hours. Isaiah 58, verses 6 and 7, 
God is speaking and He says, Is not this the fast that I have chosen, to loose the bonds of wickedness, to undo the heavy burdens, to let the oppressed go free, and that you break every yoke? Is it not to share your bread with the hungry, and that you bring to your house the poor who are cast out, when you see the naked that you cover him, and not hide yourself from your own flesh? This is called practical godliness. It says here that practical godliness, helping the needy, is the true fast that God expects His people to practice on the Day of Atonement. And so we must fast on the Day of Atonement as Jesus is cleansing the heavenly sanctuary. But it means being careful with our health principles, and it means sharing what we have with individuals who are less fortunate than us. Another thing which the people did on the Day of Atonement was to abstain from work. People did not work on the Day of Atonement. You say, well, that's good news. We don't have to work from 1844 on. <laughs> you know, there's some people that might think that's a good thing. But of course, it doesn't mean that we're not supposed to work during the Day of Atonement as Jesus is cleansing the heavenly sanctuary. The reason why people were told not to work is because their minds had to be focused on what the high priest was doing in the sanctuary. Anything that distracts our minds today, we might have some kind of work that distracts our minds from what Jesus is doing in the heavenly sanctuary. If that's the case, we need to set that aside so that we can concentrate on the cleansing of the sanctuary that Jesus is performing in heaven. Basically, on the Day of Atonement, as the high priest was cleansing the heavenly sanctuary from the sins of the people, the people on earth were supposed to be cleansing sin from their lives. Because the high priest would not cleanse anything from the heavenly sanctuary that was not cleansed from the soul temple. So let's review what happened on the Day of Atonement. It was announced by the sound of trumpets. People were commanded to assemble around the sanctuary. They had to have a, a single focus to what was happening in the sanctuary. They had to afflict their souls, search out sin, and through the grace and power of God, overcome sin. They were to fast, and fasting is practicing health reform, to have a clear mind on the Day of Atonement. It also means sharing what you have with those who are needy. They were to abstain from work, which means that anything that distracted them, any kind of work that distracted them from having a focus on the sanctuary was to be laid aside. And as the high priest was cleansing the sanctuary from the sins of the people, the people were to be cleansing the sanctuary of the soul in a parallel fashion. Amen. The Bible tells us what would happen if people did not uh, sympathize with the high priest on the Day of Atonement. In fact, two expressions are used. One, this is Leviticus 23, 28 to 30. We're told that whoever did not sympathize would be cut off from among God's people. Basically what that means is the individual would be erased from the book of life as it applies today. Because those who are in the book of life are God's people. And even a stronger term is used. It is said that whoever did not sympathize with the high priest on the Day of Atonement not only would be cut off from among the people, but would be destroyed from among the people. A very serious thing, what needed to transpire among the people on the Day of Atonement. Now, the New Testament makes it very clear that God expects His people to gain the victory over sin before the second coming of Jesus Christ, actually before the close of probation. The spirit of prophecy is very clear on that point as well. Let me read some statements from the New Testament, and then we will read also a couple of statements from the spirit of prophecy. Hebrews 12, verses 14 through 16, and then we'll read verses 28 and 29, is referring to the second coming of Jesus and the type of people that will be prepared for the second coming. It says there, here, the Apostle Paul, pursue peace with all people and what? Holiness. What are we supposed to pursue? Holiness. Without which 
No one will see the Lord. Is that clear? Holiness without which no one will see the Lord. And then God uses an example uh, to illustrate this point. Verse 15, looking carefully, lest anyone fall short of the grace of God, lest any root of bitterness springing up cause trouble, and by this many may become defiled. Lest there be any fornicator or profane person like Esau, who for one morsel of food sold his birthright. In other words, he preferred earthly pleasures to having the birthright, which would give him a right to be in the holy line that would lead to the coming of the Messiah. And then we find in verses 28 and 29, Therefore, since we are receiving a kingdom which cannot be shaken, let us have grace by which we may serve God acceptably with reverence and godly fear, for our God is a consuming fire. Now remember that expression, our God is a consuming fire. We're going to come back to it again. So once again it says that we should serve God acceptably, how? With reverence and godly fear. Notice 1 John chapter 3, verses 1 to 3. 1 John 3, verses 1 through 3. Once again, it's referring to the second coming of Jesus and the condition that God's people must be in in preparation for this time. Here the beloved disciple states, Behold what manner of love the Father has bestowed on us, that we should be called the children of God. Therefore the world does not know us, because it did not know Him. Beloved, now we are the children of God, and it has not yet been revealed what we shall be. But we know that when He is revealed, this is referring to the second coming of Jesus, we shall be like Him, for we shall see Him as He is. You notice here it says that when He reveals Himself, we will be like Him, because we will see Him as He is. So what are we supposed to be doing now in preparation for that? The last part of this passage, verse 3 says, And everyone who has this hope in Him does what? Purifies himself even as He is pure. You know, um, the... Um, the uh, words that we find in the Sermon on the Mount. Matthew chapter 5 and verse 8. Matthew chapter 5 and verse 8. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall what? For they shall see God. And by the way, all actions come out of your heart. If the heart is pure, the actions will be pure as well. Let's read one more passage. Titus chapter 2, verses 11 to 14. Titus chapter 2 and verses 11 through 14. Here the Apostle Paul, you know, people say the Apostle Paul said that uh, works aren't really that important. It's only faith. It's only, you know, justification by faith. Sanctification for Paul is a secondary thing. But notice what Paul has to say in this passage. For the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men, teaching us, notice that the grace of God teaches us something, teaching us that denying what? Ungodliness and worldly lusts. We should live how? Soberly. How else? Righteously and godly in the present age. Now why should we be living this way in the present age? It's with a view of the second coming. It says in verse 13, Looking for the blessed hope and glorious appearing of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ who gave himself for us, that he might redeem us from every lawless deed, and now notice, and purify for himself his own special people, zealous for good works. So does the Apostle Paul say that God wants a people zealous of good works? And that God wants to purify a people? Yes, absolutely. Now Ellen White specifically refers to the work that God's people need to do on earth as they prepare for the coming of Christ, for the close of probation and the coming of Christ. I want to read a couple of statements uh, from her writings. This is in the book Maranatha, page 249. From the Holy of Holies there goes on the grand work of instruction. There's a work of instruction that comes from the most holy place. She continues saying, 
The angels of God are communicating to men. Now what are they communicating? Let's continue reading. Christ officiates in the sanctuary. We do not follow Him into the sanctuary as we should. Christ and angels work in the hearts of the children of men. The church above, united with the church below, is warring the good warfare upon the earth. And then comes this remarkable statement. There must be a purifying of the soul here upon the earth in harmony with Christ's cleansing of the sanctuary in heaven. The people have to carry on a parallel work. Not only is it important to understand what Jesus does in the heavenly sanctuary, but what the people should be doing as he is cleansing the heavenly sanctuary. Here's another statement. This one is found in Manuscript 15, 1886. Godliness, sobriety, and consistency will characterize the life and example of every true Christian. The work which Christ is doing in the sanctuary above will engage the thoughts and be the burden of the conversation. Did you notice that? Once again, the work which Christ is doing in the sanctuary above will engage the thoughts and be the burden of the conversation. Because by faith he, that means the people by the way, by faith he has entered into the sanctuary. He, she's referring to the people, he is on earth, but his sympathies are in harmony with the work that Christ is doing in heaven. Christ is cleansing the heavenly sanctuary from the sins of the people. And it is the work of all those who are laborers together with God to be cleansing the sanctuary of the soul from everything that is offensive to Him. You see the parallel work again? Then she states, everything like evil surmising, envy, jealousy, enmity, and hatred will be put away. For such things grieve the Holy Spirit of God and put Christ to an open shame. Love of self will not exist, nor will any engaged in this work be puffed up. The example of Christ's life, the consistency of his character, will make his influence far-reaching. He will be a living epistle known and read by all men. That's a remarkable statement, isn't it? The bar is high, overcoming sin. And by the way, we don't overcome sin by looking at ourselves and saying, you know, I need, to, I need to line up with the law of God. Yeah, and so we try, you know, and we, we, we uproot this sin, and then we, we uproot this sin, and then the other one comes back. No, it's not looking at sin and trying to overcome sin that we gain the victory. It's by contemplating Christ. Amen. You see, as we look, of, look at Christ, as I was saying yesterday, we see our own unworthiness. We see, we see that we're miserable sinners. We're wretched people, like the Apostle Paul says. And because we're looking at our imperfection in the light of Christ's perfection. And then we look at the cross, and we look at Gethsemane, and say, Jesus, look what happened to you. Why did this happen to you? Jesus says, because of sin. And then we're going to hate sin. And we're going to love the Savior. And we're going to want to reflect the character of the Savior. It's all about Christ. It's not about us. It's not about us struggling by ourselves with sin to overcome sin. It's about keeping our eyes on Jesus. And as we do that, we see our sinfulness and we want to be like Him. When we see His sacrifice, it will be a pleasure to serve Jesus. Amen. So it's all centered in Him. It's not centered in us. Amen. Now what I want us to do in the next minutes that we have is to examine several passages where a very important question is asked. We've already noticed that um, when probation closes and Jesus comes, Jesus is going to have a people who are victorious over sin in their lives. Now, does the Bible corroborate that point? Let's notice Revelation chapter 6 and verses 14 through 17. We're going to look at a very important question that appears several places in Scripture. Revelation 6, verses 14 through 17. And the kings of the earth, the great men, the rich men, the commanders, the mighty men, every slave and every free man, hid themselves in the caves and in the rocks of the mountains, and said to the mountains and rocks, Fall on us and hide us from the face of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. Now, what event is being described in these verses? 
the second coming of Jesus Christ. But do you notice that there's a question that is asked after the second coming is described? Verse 17, the conclusion of this passage says, For the great day of his wrath has come, and who is able to stand? So when Jesus comes, the question is, the great day of his wrath has come, who will be able to stand? Now we need to understand what the word stand means. It's the antonym of what? A fall. That's right. I want to make reference to several verses that use the same word, stand. Jesus said, a kingdom divided against itself cannot stand. Mark chapter 3, verses 24 and 25. What does that mean, cannot stand? It means it's going to what? It's going to fall. That's right. John 8, 44 says that Satan at the very beginning did not stand in the truth. What does that mean? He fell from the truth, right? 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 12 says, He that thinks that he stands, let him take heed lest he fall. See, there you have both ideas in the same verse. Notice Ephesians 6, 11 to 13. We're, we're analyzing what it means to stand. Who will be able to stand is the question when Jesus comes. Notice Ephesians chapter 6, verses 11 to 13. Put on the whole armor of God, that you may be able to what? To stand against the wiles of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this age, against spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavenly places. Therefore take up the whole armor of God, that you may be, may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all to what? To stand. In other words, not fall, stand. 2 Timothy 2.19 uses the very same word, stand. It says, nevertheless, the solid foundation of God stands. What is the solid foundation of God that stands? She could, uh, we find the Apostle Paul continuing, Having this seal, the Lord knows those who are His, and that everyone who names the name of Christ do what? Depart from iniquity. What, it, what does it mean to stand? It means that whoever claims the name of Christ is to depart from what? From iniquity. One final text that refers to the word stand, and this refers specifically to the second coming. Luke 21 verse 36, Luke 21 36 says, Watch therefore and pray always that you may be counted worthy to escape all these things that will come to pass and to stand before the Son of Man at the second coming of Jesus. So we have this question at the end of chapter 6 of Revelation, at the second coming, who will be able to stand? So the question is, where would you expect the answer to this question? How about the very next chapter? Revelation 7, 1 through 4 has the answer to the question. It says there in Revelation 7, 1 through 4, After these things, I saw four angels standing at the four corners of the earth, holding the four winds of the earth, that the wind should not blow on the earth, on the sea, or on any tree. Then I saw another angel ascending from the east, having the seal of the living God. And he cried with a loud voice to the four angels to whom it was granted to harm the earth and the sea, saying, Do not harm the earth, the sea, or the trees, till we have sealed the servants of our God on their foreheads. And I heard the number of those who were sealed, 144,000 of all the tribes of the children of Israel were sealed. So the question is, who is going to be able to stand? The 144,000. That's why we believe that the 144,000 are those who will be alive when Jesus comes. Those will be the ones who will be able to stand, according to Revelation 7, 1 through 4. So you have the second coming, the question, who will be able to stand? And then you have the answer in Revelation 7, 1 through 4. Though the 144,000 will be able to stand. Now, in Revelation 7, you have only a, a mention of the 144,000, the sealing of the 144,000. But nothing is said about their character. But in Revelation chapter 14, you have a reference to the character that the 144,000 will have. Let's go to Revelation 14, verses 1 through 5. See, we know from Revelation 7 that they're sealed. 
From Revelation 14, we're going to find out the character that they had so that they could be sealed. It says in Revelation 14, verse 1, Then I looked, and behold, a lamb standing on Mount Zion, and with him 144,000, having his father's name written on their foreheads. Some ver the King James says, in their foreheads. Amen. Now, what does it mean to have God's name written in the forehead or on the forehead? But what is the name? The name is the character, isn't it? In the Bible, the name represents the character. God reveals his name, which means he reveals his character. So whose character do the 144,000 have? They have the Father's character, their foreheads. What do you have in your behind your forehead? Your frontal lobe, right? Where all of your decisions are made. Notice what it continues saying. And I heard a voice from heaven like the voice of many waters and like the voice of loud thunder. And I heard the sound of harpists playing with their harps. They sang as it were a new song before the throne, before the four living creatures and the elders. And no one could learn that song except the 144,000 who were redeemed from the earth. Now it doesn't mean that uh, the other people who are there who didn't go through the final crisis will not be able to understand the song. They just won't be able to sing it in the same way that the 144,000 do because they haven't gone through the same experience. You know, it kind of reminds me of, of uh, Negro spirituals. You know, I've heard quartets that's, uh, of, of white guys that sing Negro spirituals, and I've heard quartets of uh, African-Americans singing it. Uh, the, the white guys don't stand a ghost of a chance when it comes to comparing it. <laughs> the African-American uh, quartet, <laughs> they win every time. Why? Because it's the song of their experience. White people have never been slaves. Are you understanding what I'm saying? Amen. Now, can we understand the song, Swing low, sweet chariot, coming for to carry me home? Of course we can understand the words. Can we understand the experience? No. That's what this is saying. It's not that people, are not, people that lived in other times are not going to be able to understand the words that are being sung. It means that they will not be able to sing with the same expression because they haven't had the same experience. It continues saying here, These ones were not defiled with women, for they are virgins. So in other words, they never got married. No, that's not what it means. <laughs> Who are the women that, that are being talked about here? Ah, the apostate, the harlot and her daughters. That's right. They were not defiled with end-time Babylon. They came out of Babylon. And then, of course, there were those who were not in Babylon from the start. So it says, these are the ones who were not defiled with women, for they are virgins. These ones follow the Lamb wherever He goes. Are they going to follow Him to Gethsemane? Remember we read a statement last night? Are they going to follow Him to Gethsemane? Are they going to follow Him to the cross? Are they going to go through the passion of Christ? Ellen White says that we're going to repeat the scenes that took place with Jesus. So they will follow the Lamb wherever He goes. These were redeemed from among men, being firstfruits to God and to the Lamb. And in their mouth was found no deceit. From the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. So if in their mouth they have no deceit, what is the condition of their heart? Their heart is pure and clean, because from the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. And so it says, in their mouth was found no deceit, for they are without fault before the throne of God. What is the end time generation going to be like? Are they going to sympathize with the work of Jesus in the heavenly sanctuary? Amen. Are they going to be contemplating Jesus, keeping their eyes on Jesus, and through his power, through his grace, overcoming sin in the life, cleansing the soul temple as Jesus is cleansing the heavenly sanctuary? See, sometimes we focus so much on what he's doing up there that we forget that there's a work to be done down here. Amen. Now, this is not the, Revelation is not the only place where this question is asked. Who shall be able to stand? There are other passages. Go with me to Joel chapter 2. Joel chapter 2. Now, if you read the first 10 verses of this chapter, you're going to discover that it is referring to the second coming of Christ. We're only going to read verse 11, which is the climax of the first 10 verses. 
Clearly, Ellen White quotes this passage, and it refers to the second coming of Christ. It says there in Joel 2, verse 11, The Lord gives voice before His army, for His camp is very great, for strong is the one who executes His word. And now notice the question that comes. For the day of the Lord is great and very terrible. Who can endure it? Is that a similar question to Revelation 6, 17? Yeah, the second coming, Jesus is coming with His army, He's giving His commands, and the question is asked here, once again, very similar to Revelation, for the day of the Lord is great and very terrible, who can endure it? So where would you expect the answer to this question? How about beginning in verse 12, the very next verse? I want you to notice that, the, that verse 12 through 17 refers to the Day of Atonement. Very clearly, all of the characteristics are characteristics of the Day of Atonement. In other words, who's going to be able to stand? Those who did what they were supposed to be doing on the Day of Atonement. Notice verse 12. It says there, Now, therefore, says the Lord, Turn to me with all your heart. With what? Is this talking about the Day of Atonement? Yes. With fasting. With what? Ah, here's the affliction. With weeping and with mourning. So rend your heart and not your garments. Return to the Lord your God, for He is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and of great kindness, and He relents from doing harm. Who knows if He will turn and relent and leave a blessing behind Him, a grain offering and a drink offering for the Lord your God. Blow the trumpet in Zion. Was the Day of Atonement announced by trumpets? Absolutely. Blow the trumpet in Zion. Consecrate a fast. There's a Day of Atonement. Call a sacred assembly where people are required to assemble. Yes. Gather the people. Sanctify the congregation. Assemble the other elders. Gather the children and nursing babes. Let the bridegroom go out of his chamber and the bride from her dressing room. Not even time for a wedding. Because the focus is what? The focus is getting ready for the great and very terrible day of the Lord. And then, notice what the ministers are supposed to, doing, supposed to be doing. That's, that's me. It says here, let the priests who minister to the Lord weep between the porch and the altar. Let them say, spare your people, O Lord, and do not give your heritage to reproach that the nation should rule over them, why should they say among the peoples, where is their God? Are you following this? Who will be able to stand when Jesus comes? Those who sympathize with the work of Jesus on the Day of Atonement. Because immediately after the question, which uh, the question is, great and very terrible is, is his day. Who can endure it? You have a description of what the people are doing on the Day of Atonement. But this is not the only place where the question is asked. Go with me to Isaiah 33, verses 14 through 16. You know, there's a lot of de depreciating these days of the importance of conduct or behavior. There's a lot of emphasis on the imputed righteousness of Christ. And don't, un, don't misunderstand me. The imputed righteousness of, of Christ is our title to heaven. It's the right we have to go to heaven. The righteousness of Jesus. Because we have no righteousness. However, when we truly have the righteousness of Christ, it will be revealed in the life, in the conduct. God will have a people whose conduct is Christ-like before the second coming of Christ. Now, I want you to notice Isaiah 33 Verses 14 through 16. Notice a similar question. The sinners in Zion are afraid. Fearfulness has seized the hypocrites. Here comes the question. Actually, two questions. Who among us shall dwell with the devouring fire? Who among us shall dwell with everlasting burnings? You understanding the question? Who is, by the way, the devouring fire? Remember Hebrews we read, God is a consuming fire? Okay, so the question is, who's going to be able to dwell with God, who is the consuming fire? Who among us shall dwell with the everlasting burnings? Notice that in the answer, the emphasis is upon the godly lifestyle. 
That's the answer, just like the 144,000, just like Joel chapter 2. It says there in uh, verse 15, He who walks righteously. When the Bible uses the word walk in a figurative way, it refers to your conduct or your behavior. He who says that he is in him ought to walk as he walked, it says in the New Testament. So, he who walks righteously and speaks uprightly, he who despises the gain of oppressions, who gestures with his hands refusing bribes, who stops his ears from hearing of bloodshed and shuts his eyes from seeing evil, he will dwell on high. His place of defense will be the fortress of rocks, bread will be given him, and his water will be sure. And Ellen White uses this verse to refer to God's people going through the final tribulation. God will provide their water and he will provide their food. Did you notice the question is asked and then the answer reveals the character qualities that God's people will have. Their behavioral qualities, their conduct. But this isn't the only place where the question is asked. We have to go now to Psalm 15, because in Psalm 15 we have the same question all over again. Verse 1 of Psalm 15 says, Lord, who may abide in your tabernacle? Who may dwell in your holy hill? What is God's holy hill? What is the name of God's holy hill? Mount Zion. Where did the 144,000 stand? Zion. So we know that there's a connection here. So the question is, Lord, who shall may abide in your tabernacle? Who may dwell in your holy hill? Now notice the answer once again. It emphasizes the conduct or the behavior of those who are going to be in God's holy hill. Not that our behavior earns us salvation, but our behavior shows that we have been fully saved by Jesus. We have received him as our Savior. He has changed and transformed our lives. You see, we're not saved by faith alone. Amen. We're not saved by works alone. Amen. We're not saved by faith plus works. Amen. We're saved by a faith that works. Amen. Because a faith that doesn't work, excuse the expression, ain't faith. Amen. In Hebrews 11, all of the heroes are doing something. Amen. By faith, Abel offered. Amen. By faith, Abraham left. By faith, Noah built. Yes. By faith, Abraham took his son to sacrifice his son. Yes. All of the heroes in, in chapter 11 of Hebrews are showing that they believe God because of the way that they're acting or the way that they're behaving. Our behavior does not save us, but our behavior shows if we're close to Jesus, if we have truly received Jesus as our Savior. And that's the reason why the Bible says we are saved by grace through faith, but we will be judged by works, because works show if faith is genuine or not. So notice the answer in Psalm 15. The question is, who may abide in your tabernacle? Who may dwell in your holy hill? Here's the answer. He who walks uprightly and works righteousness and speaks the truth in his heart. He who does not backbite with his tongue, Amen. nor does evil to his neighbor, Amen. nor does he take up a reproach against his friend, right. in whose eyes a vile person is despised, but he honors those who fear the Lord. Yes. He who swears to his own hurt and does not change, doesn't break his promises in other words. He who does not put out his money at usury, that means at exorbitant interest, that would be a covetous person. Nor does he take a bribe against the innocent. And now notice the conclusion. He who does these things shall never be moved. Who shall be able to stand? Whoever does these things will never be moved. Is there any relationship? Yes, but this isn't the only place that the question is asked. <laughs> we have to go to Psalm 24. Psalm 24 and verse 3. By the way, this song was sung when Jesus ascended to heaven. And it's going to be sung again when Jesus returns to heaven with his people after having come to earth to pick them up. It says in verse 3, Who may ascend into the hill of the Lord? 
What is the Lord's hill? Zion, very well. Who may ascend into the hill of the Lord? Or who may stand in his holy place? Now here comes the answer. He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who has not lifted up his soul to an idol, nor sworn deceitfully, he shall receive blessing from the Lord and righteousness from the God of his salvation. This is Jacob, the generation of those who seek him, who seek your face. So you have the question. The answer to the question emphasizes the conduct or the behavior, the lifestyle of the person. But in Psalm 24, we have one additional detail. And that is, not only do we have the question, who may ascend to the hill of the Lord? Who may stand in his holy place? Not only do we have the answer, the behavior qualities of those who are going to stand on God's holy hill, but we actually have a description of the entrance of God's people into the holy city. Verses 7 through 10. Immediately after asking the question and describing the character qualities, we find these words. Lift up your heads, O you gates, and be lifted up, you everlasting doors. And the king of glory shall come in. Who is this king of glory? The Lord, strong and mighty. The Lord, mighty in battle. Lift up your heads, O you gates. Lift up you everlasting doors, and the king of glory shall come in. Who is this king of glory? The Lord of hosts. He is the king of glory. Now, the first fulfillment of this was when Jesus ascended to heaven. You can read it in the last three pages of Desire of Ages. It's a spectacular description. You know, there Ellen White says that heaven is getting ready for the arrival of Christ. God the Father is sitting on his throne. Before the throne are burning the seven lamps of fire representing the Holy Spirit. In the midst of the throne you have four living creatures, which represent the cherubim and seraphim. Then you have the 24 elders surrounding the throne. Those are the representatives of the worlds that never sinned, according to uh, Desire of Ages. They're all there in heaven, and they're waiting for the arrival of the war hero with those that were rescued from the grave, with the first fruits. And Ellen White describes it beautifully there in these three pages of Desire of Ages. As Jesus is ascending, and he nears the city, uh, the, the angels that are uh, ascending say, open up ye gates, open up the gates to the city. And, uh, and you know, for, so the king of glory can come in. And the angels that are inside say, who is this king of glory? It's an antiphonal song. It's a responsive song. And so now comes the answer, the Lord mighty in battle, he is the king. Who is this king of glory? Comes the question. Ellen White says that the question is asked for the second time, not because they don't believe what they're saying, but simply because they want to hear the they want to hear about this king that's coming back. Beautiful. And so then she says, the gates of heaven are opened, and Jesus, along with the redeemed, go in. And then Ellen White describes how there is God the Father sitting on his throne. She says, there. Are, are the cherubim and the seraphim. She says, there are the representatives of the worlds that never sinned, all waiting to welcome their Redeemer. And then what happens is, Jesus raises his hands and says, shh. And everybody suddenly is silent. And Ellen White describes how Jesus goes into the presence of his Father. He's now going to present himself as a lamb as though he had been slain. And he shows his father the wounds on his hands, on his, on his head, on his side, on his feet. He says, Father, I need to know that my sacrifice is accepted by you. And the father embraces the son, said it's sufficient. And then God the father says, let him worship all the, let all the angels of God worship him. And then there's an explosion of praise in heaven. You know, this scene is going to be repeated again. Jesus is going to come to the earth for the second time, and then he's going to begin his trip home, back to heaven. This time with all of the redeemed. Amen. Once again, this song is going to be sung. Now, there's this idea that when Jesus comes, his Father is coming with him. But the fact is, folks, 
that when Jesus comes back to this earth to gather his people to take them to heaven, God the Father will remain on his throne in heaven. The cherubim and seraphim will be there. The representatives of the worlds will be there in heaven. They will be there to give a welcome to God's people. Let me read you a statement from Ellen White. In other words, the scene of the ascension of Christ is going to be repeated, but this time it's going to be all of the redeemed that come with Jesus, with the characteristics that we noticed in Psalm 24. In uh, uh, the seventh volume of Bible Commentary, page 950, Ellen White uh, states this, The sacrifice of our Savior has made ample provision for every repenting, believing soul. We are saved because God loves the purchase of the blood of Christ. And not only will he pardon, listen carefully, not only will he pardon the repentant sinner, not only will he permit him to enter heaven, but, the, but he, the Father of mercies, will wait at the very gates of heaven to welcome us. <laughs> That's why Acts chapter 3 says, that he shall send forth Jesus. In other words, the Father doesn't come. All heaven is going to be waiting for the return of the war hero from the battle of Armageddon to give a welcome to him and all of the redeemed from all ages who have the character qualities that are described there in Psalm 24. Does our lifestyle make any difference? It makes a huge difference because it shows if we are truly committed to Jesus. Folks, you know, our lifestyle should reflect the fact that we hate sin. Amen. Because we have our eyes on Jesus and we have our eyes on Jesus, we're going to hate sin because of what sin did to Jesus. The problem is our eyes are everywhere except on Jesus. And so we don't gain the victory over sin because we take our eyes off of Jesus. We struggle against sin instead of looking at the Savior. Now I want to read you a statement as we draw this to a close. The Upward Look, page 344, Ellen White has this magnificent statement. Satan is constantly alluring away from faithfulness and thoroughness in the essential work of preparedness for the great event that will try every man's soul. The work in the heavenly sanctuary is going forward. Jesus is cleansing the sanctuary. The work on earth corresponds with the work in heaven. He the heavenly angels are at work constantly to draw man, the living agent, to look to Jesus, to contemplate and meditate upon Jesus, that he may, in viewing the perfection of Christ, be impressed with the imperfections of his own character. This is the burden of the message for this time. Very clear. When Ellen White speaks about the message for this time, another way of expressing it is the present truth. They're synonymous. The message for this time, present truth. In another statement, the book Maranatha, page 240, Ellen White describes, she says, Not one of us will ever receive the seal of God while our characters have one spot or stain upon them. It is left with us to remedy the defects in our characters, to cleanse the soul temple from every defilement. Then the latter rain will fall upon us as the early rain fell upon the disciples. And then there's this awesome statement. Ellen White says that we're going to live during the time of trouble without an intercessor. Now, don't misunderstand me. We're not going to live during that time without a protector. You know, because some people say, okay, you know, Jesus is going to leave. Say, You're on your own, folks. No, 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 we're not going to be on our own. Jesus will no longer be high priest. He'll no longer be an intercessor, but he will be Michael, the protector. Because if he wasn't here to protect us, nobody would survive. But he will not be interceding for sin. So let me ask you, if Jesus is not, if we can't send our sins anymore to the sanctuary, must we have gained total victory over sin? Amen. Absolutely. Not in our own efforts, but, but keeping our eyes on Jesus. That's the whole point. You know, because people say, if you say that you, can, that, that you have to totally overcome sin, you're a perfectionist. 
No, no, no. You're only a perfectionist if, if you think yourself like a Pharisee holier than thou. And you're looking at yourself and you say, hey, I'm doing pretty good, you know. I'm doing this, I'm doing that. Only if you're looking at yourself. If you have your eyes on Jesus, the perfection of Jesus, your own imperfection. And if you see how much sin costs to Jesus, then, you know, you're going to be so busy with your own life, you're not going to have time to criticize the other brother because he's not a vegan. <laughs> I have enough trouble with my own life to be looking at other people's lives. So we not need to keep our eyes on Jesus. Listen to this statement. Great Controversy 6.23. Now, while our great high priest is making the atonement for us. While the high priest is what? Making an atonement for us. We should seek to become perfect in Christ. Not even by a thought could our Savior be brought to yield to the power of temptation. Not even by a thought. Then she describes us. She says, Satan finds in human hearts some point where he can gain a foothold. Some sinful desire is cherished by means of which his temptations assert their power. But Christ declared of himself, the prince of this world cometh and he hath nothing in me. Satan could find nothing in the Son of God that would enable him to gain the victory. He had kept his father's commandments and there was no sin in him that Satan could use to his advantage. And now listen to the conclusion. This is the condition in which those must be found who shall stand in the time of trouble. Higher than the highest thought. You say it's an impossibility. Yes, for human beings it is an impossibility. Because the flesh is weak. But although the flesh is weak, the Lord is strong. And the Lord can give us victory. Total victory over sin. Now what is the secret of victory? Once again, keeping our eyes on Jesus. And we keep our eyes on Jesus by filling our heart with His Word. Amen. See, the only place that we can behold Jesus is in His Word. Amen. You know, God is not telling us that we need some kind of mystical connection with Jesus. That's right. You know, like, like I sit down, I meditate, I empty my mind, and now I have this connection with Jesus. No, 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 no. The only way that I can know Jesus is through the written Word. Amen. Filling my mind with the promises of God. Filling my mind with Jesus, particularly the closing scenes of his life. Not emptying the mind, filling the mind with the word of God. As the psalmist said, thy word have I hid in my heart that I may not sin against thee. And as we studied yesterday, as we behold Jesus, a metamorphosis takes place. A trans. Formation, because that's what metamorphosis means, literally. Transformation takes place. And the more we behold Jesus, the more we are changed into His image. From glory to glory, from character to character, until the time when we're so close to Jesus, like Enoch was, that Jesus is going to say, there's no reason for you to stay down there anymore. Come up here, and we'll walk together down the street of gold. So folks, let's not throw up our arms and give up and say, oh, what's the use? No, no. Let's endure. Let's keep our eyes on Jesus. Let's dedicate our time to studying His Word. Let's dedicate our time to praying. Let's dedicate our time to talking to others about Jesus. Because when we're, when we're talking about Jesus, we have no time to think about ourselves. See, we're, we're so self-focused these days. Everything is self-help. We can't help ourselves. Only Jesus can help us. So let's keep our focus upon Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we are living, we know, in the great day of atonement. Since 1844, Jesus has been cleansing the sanctuary from the sins of those who died in Christ. We know, Lord, that soon, no one knows how soon, the cases of the living will be examined. The loud cry will, will announce that it's time to leave Babylon. It's time to be among God's people for the sealing is going to take place and probation is going to close. I believe, Lord, that we are nearing that time. 
I don't want to set dates, but I believe that as we observe the world, we are definitely living in the last generation. Oh, Lord, help us to keep our eyes focused on Jesus, to fall in love with Jesus. Help us to see our own unworthiness, our own sinfulness. Lord, help us to see what sin cost to Jesus. It was such an expensive thing. He will have the wounds throughout eternity to remind us of his great love and the terrible nature of sin. Lord, give us the desire, the profound desire in our hearts to overcome sin through the grace of Jesus. Thank you, Lord, for having been with us and for instructing us this morning. And we ask, Lord, that you will empower us to live in harmony with what we have studied. We pray this in the precious name of Jesus. Amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.